Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. And welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories take us from a terrifying childhood moment in war-torn Italy through a struggle to survive the worst of the Atlantic, having to master a new invention and making a decision that was to have dramatic consequences. We begin this week with this from Alexander Marchi. In Italy, by late July 1944, the Germans have retreated to the hills to the south of Florence, where they defended the Paola line against the advancing Allies. My Italian grandfather, Aldo, was 14 years old and lived in the village of Cebaia, right on what became the Paola line. That month, a German officer turned up at Aldo's door and took him away at gunpoint. His mother, in hysterics, sent his grandfather to follow him and make sure he wasn't harmed. Surprisingly, the Germans allowed this elderly man to watch over Aldo as, together with other boys from the village, he was made to dig holes for mines at gunpoint. By the 26th of July, the Germans had begun to retreat through Jebaya and take up positions on the hills overlooking the valley and the villagers were told to evacuate. The next day, Aldo and his family made for high ground to try and avoid the fighting. They went to the village of San Michele, which had a large church and a farmhouse they could hide in. Unfortunately for them, the 29th Panzergrenadier Division decided to make their stand there, so Aldo was then slap-bang in the middle of the fighting as the New Zealand 6th Brigade arrived. Aldo, along with over 100 villagers, hid in a cellar as the Germans and New Zealanders started to exchange fire. It was full of barrels used to store olive oil and crates for vegetables. Aldo hid between the barrels and used one of the crates in which to hide his little brother as the shelling above them intensified with each passing minute. There was much terrified wailing and worried prayers as the ground above them shook with every attack. According to the official history of the New Zealand Army, over 40,000 shells were being fired each day at San Michele. By the 29th of July, it was hand-to-hand fighting with Tigers and Shermans involved too. One Kiwi soldier wrote in his diary that it was the hottest spot of the war. Aldo and the villagers could not leave. They were stuck right behind the German line, now having gone two days without any food or water. Injured German soldiers were being brought down to the already packed cellar. Two Germans were placed next to the crate where Aldo and his younger brother were crouched, one moaning loudly with a severe head wound while the other had been shot in his side and lay on the floor, bleeding. It was four nights and three full days without water or food before the Germans retreated from the village. It was evening when Aldo and the others finally left the cellar, weak and starving from their ordeal. As they left... Aldo noticed a gigantic crater 150 yards from where they had been sheltering. It's a sobering thought that if the RAF had been slightly more accurate and had hit the German positions, my grandfather and his fellow villagers could have been wiped out. Getting back to Chebaya, they had to avoid mines while two planes were dogfighting right above them. 
At the bottom of the hill, they found four Sherman tanks waiting to get over the river and join the assault on the Germans retreating to Florence. The Kiwis didn't allow anyone to go back to their homes, so Aldo had to go and live in a farmhouse nearby. There was also a Jewish family with them, who the villagers had hid from the Germans. The moment they saw the Kiwis, they collapsed at their feet in a state of gratitude and relief. Aldo still remembers that week and the incredible sight of Maori and Indian soldiers marching through his village. He'd never seen people from a different race before. It was always an emotional time going back with him to the cellar, which is still there today, and in the past few years he's even met some of the descendants of the Kiwis who fought there. The battle is not talked about often, but the Battle of San Michele was a hard slog for the Kiwis, and their victory led to Kesselring, ordering the bridges over the Arno in Florence to be blown, as he anticipated the Allied advance to the city. That was from Alexander Marchi. Thank you, Alexander. Our next story comes from Mark Barnes. Hi, chaps. My uncle Edward Leslie Barnes was second officer on the freighter Seven Lee. The ship was sunk by gunfire from U-37 commanded by Victor Owen on the 23rd of August 1940. She was in ballast and bound for Halifax, Nova Scotia from Hull. She was 600 nautical miles south of Iceland at the time. There is some controversy over the actions of Owen, who ordered his gunners to fire at the lifeboats. He was tried for a war crime, but I think he successfully defended himself, claiming the ship's Dems gunner was still firing. The survivors were left in two boats, which made the 1,200-mile journey to Harris in the Western Isles. My Uncle Teddy is said to have assumed command after the master, Robert Hammett, drank seawater and was delirious. Teddy navigated by the stars and got the boats to Harris. The survivor figures vary. I've heard nine or twelve. Hammett was awarded the OBE and the Lloyds Medal, and Teddy received the Merchant Navy's first George Medal and the Lloyds Medal. I've been told he had to shoot men who were deranged from drinking seawater, endangering the others, which is why he only got the George Medal. The lifeboat journey lasted 14 days. The men in the boats lived on a tablespoon of condensed milk a day. A schoolboy named Findlay McCaskill find the survivors coming ashore on Harris and raised the alarm. I had some contact with his son a few years ago. Findlay was still alive at the time. In 1944, Teddy was aboard the old freighter Benderan, which he took to the coast off Juneau Beach, where she was sunk to build the breakwater on the 7th of June. Teddy became a captain post-war and was commanding a tanker when he had a heart attack in 1957. I believe he's buried in Uruguay or Argentina. That was from Mark Barnes. Our next story comes from Hugh Dolphin. Dear James and Al, I had an uncle with an incredible wartime record in the 7th Hussars. However, I thought I would relate some recollections of his little sister, my mum. Mary Ebenezer, May to her friends, was born in 1933 in the small and remote village of Tregaron in mid-Wales. It was a rural and relatively impoverished place to grow up, but it's clear from my mum's recollections that these were some of the happiest days of her life. She was one of seven children. The eldest, Idwal, spent five years away during the war without any home leave. Here is Mum's story of how she outfoxed the Desert Fox, predicted D-Day, and her recollections of Idwell's return from the war, all from her perspective as a child. So, in Mum's words, It was my 11th birthday on the 4th of June 1944. My education was bilingual, my natural language was Welsh, and our extra language was English. Every week, 
We had a special day, which we all looked forward to, because we would have a current affairs discussion with the headmaster, and there was plenty to discuss. We had for some time been surrounded by soldiers with jeeps, tanks, Bren gun carriers and lorries who had been training on our hills and mountains. We also saw a surge of American soldiers with their chocolate bars for the children and nylon stockings for the ladies. These discussions at school were always in English, and because we did not have a wireless, we relied on newspapers for our news of the war. The Daily Mirror was our paper because there were always maps on the back page. My eldest brother, Idwal, was attached to the 7th Queen's Own Hussars and was out in Italy at the time, having joined up in 1940. We had not seen him since then, so my mother encouraged us to track him all that time, and we learnt a great deal of world geography. We wrote letters to servicemen and became very literate. In some ways, the war really had some good effects on us. Anyway, our discussion on the 4th of June was exciting. Out of the blue, I said, Sir, we're going to invade France tomorrow. He thundered at me. Who told you that? I said, Nobody. I just know it. He stormed at me again, saying careless talk costs lives. He urged me never to say such things. I spoke to nobody about it for many years, I was so ashamed. When the joyful news of D-Day spread, it was wonderful. My headmaster, along with the other teachers, said to me, You were right, and it was never referred to again until now, but I never forgot. My eldest brother, Edwell, had been very keen to join up when the war began, and in January 1940 joined the army. Before long, he went out to Egypt with the 7th Hussars, a tank regiment in which he was driving a lorry. One experience he had was getting lost in the desert in his lorry, and he was presumed to have been killed or taken by the enemy. However, eventually he turned up safe. At the end of 1941, the 7th Hussars were going to Singapore, but before they embarked, Singapore surrendered and they were sent to Rangoon in Burma instead. They had a bad time fighting the Japanese and eventually had to abandon their tanks and live on practically nothing as they retreated from Burma, some of them barefooted and in rags. By that time, Idwal was a sergeant and had to push and pull these men and make sure they kept moving. He said that when he got very thirsty, he picked up a pebble and put it in his mouth just to make himself salivate. That is how he got through. They went through to India and recuperated, then went via Iraq, the Middle East and Egypt and through North Africa. They were part of the force that invaded Sicily and then from Sicily into Italy. They went up near to Rome and then north towards Venice. He came home from there at the beginning of 1945, a few months after my youngest sister Joyce was born in late 44. My father had gone into Tregaron to fetch the paper. When he came home, he brought Idwell with him. I remember him coming home. A mother threw her hands up in the air. She couldn't believe her luck. She had to sit down. That night, my younger brother Tom and I asked my mother and father if we could sleep in the same bed with Idwell, and we slept on either side of him. It was really lovely. He came to speak to us at school, all about his experiences in the army, and of course he gave the impression he'd gone away on a long holiday, even though he had been away fighting for over four years. Four years without any of us seeing him. It was magic that he was home. That story from Hugh Dolphin and his mother May. Our next story comes from Derek Nudd. My dad was a talented graphic designer and protégé of the great Hugh Cudlip, working for the Sunday Pictorial until called up in 1940. He was posted to a heavy anti-aircraft battery, where a hitherto unsuspected talent for maths took him from heaving shells to the predictor, and then he was moved on again to train on the new, top-secret, highly temperamental, gun-laying radar. 
Those first radar sets were hastily produced laboratory equipment, and the operators had to understand the underlying physics and technology at a fundamental level to get useful results from them. His work with a mobile unit took him from the London Blitz to the Midlands, Glasgow, the South Coast, then, after more intensive training, the Normandy and Northwest Europe campaigns. He kept up a steady stream of letters home throughout, sardonic, scathing about the army's shortcomings, and at times hilarious. He was happy to change his mind when necessary. For example, having been dismissive about women gunners when mixed batteries were first introduced, he revised his view after working with one. He wrote, We had good first-hand experience of the gentle sex in action, and it was extremely impressive. The girls didn't bat an eyelid and put up a very fine show. The majority of them are Scotch, and all were wildly enthusiastic. The letters peter out after his wife died suddenly in November 1944, while he was on active service, but left me enough material to write a book. Armageddon fed up with this, a gunner's tale, tracing his progress from raw recruit to seasoned sergeant, illustrated in his own words. And that story was from Derek Nudd. Our next story comes from Alistair Carson and his mum, Irene. Dear We Have Ways, This is a story that relates to my grandparents and encompasses civilian and service life. My mum, who is 77, put it together and asked me to send it to you. Mum writes, Edward Teddy Fitzpatrick was my dad. He was born in 1904 in Glasgow. When World War II came, there was mum, dad and my sisters May and Martha. When war was declared, my dad signed up to join the Royal Navy. Dad explained his decision to Mum. Lizzie, they'll be sending my call-up papers and I might get sent to the army and have to wear a kilt. And I've got skinny legs. So, Dad went to war. My sisters were evacuated to Rothsey while my mum did her bit for the war. She went to work in Fairfield Shipyard. Mum used to visit May and Martha on Sundays. After about a year, they wanted to come home. And as she missed them as well, she brought them back home to govern. One time, Dad told Mum that a ship had been sunk and he was one of many sailors involved in rescuing men from the stricken vessel. Dad told her he was very frightened as bombs and bullets were going off everywhere. They couldn't do anything to help the dead. Mum said letters were few and far between and she would listen to the news on the radio at night. One time during the war, my family went to see Belfast to see Granny, Dad's mum. Martha took ill the day before they were coming home, but as Dad had a ship to catch because he was going back to the war, they had to leave Martha with Granny in Belfast. Martha was only about ten. A year later, when Dad was on leave, they went back to Belfast to see Granny and brought Martha back home. During one night's bombing, May was out at a local hall dancing at the Pierce Institute in Govan, which is still there. Mum and Martha were at home in a tenement flat when the siren went off. All were worried for each other, and although they were only separated by a ten-minute walk, they had to wait until morning to find out if they were OK. No one knew where the bombs had landed till morning, when the all-clear sounded. Dad was on leave when Clydebank was blitzed. He and my sisters went to see the horrors of war. Dad became a bosun. We had a photo of him in the living room, above the fireplace, wearing his uniform and skip cap. He was a handsome man. We had beautiful Christmas cards Dad sent to my mum, May and Martha. They had lovely bright colours and looked as if they were made of silk. They once received a telegram saying, Ship sunk, but not me. I'm pleased to say my dad survived the war and I was born in 1945. My dad died in 1969 and mum gave each of their seven grandsons one of his medals. 
dad was a quiet man who could sing, play the accordion, paint and love the garden. He didn't drink alcohol, but was a tea jenny and smoked like a chimney. He had lovely tattoos also. That was from Irene Fitzpatrick Carson. Thank you for sharing those memories. Our final family story this week comes from Cape Town and Martine Watts. Hi, Alan James. My mum, who sadly passed away during Covid, was born in the Netherlands in 1936. Her parents were British expats and she lived in a small town outside Rotterdam. She could clearly remember the day the Nazis invaded. They were literally marching down the road outside her house. The family managed to escape out the back with their passports and the clothes they stood up in. There were two ships in Rotterdam Harbour waiting to take the British nationals back to the UK. For some reason, her parents decided to make for the ship furthest away. While they were doing that, the ship that was close by was bombed and sank in the harbour and everyone drowned. They arrived back in England safely and after the war made their way out to Cape Town and then on to current day Zimbabwe. I'm always amazed when I think of this story and how many of our family members would not be here if not for my grandpa's gut feeling about insisting they went for the furthest ship away all those years ago. Keep up the good work. Martin Watt. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. <laughs>